Hey friends, so glad you could join us again for another episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. In this case, we have got a two-part show, and in this case, it's just me. Stacy is off at her new job, and I've been working nights at a sushi place. It's been exciting. It's been challenging, kind of like um, doing something to challenge yourself more than just getting a job. It's kind of hectic. I've never done food service before. And I've also never um, made mixed drinks before in a professional setting. So it's, it's a steep learning curve, but I'm having a lot of fun. And yet we're having a hard time here uh, connecting up uh, Stacy and I with our schedules. We will continue to be able to get together and bring you content. But in this case, I am going to be addressing things that really relate to my own work over the last 20 years and even uh, go back all the way to my dissertation and uh, my book on 16th century philosophy of religion because we're dealing with the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the body. Um, And they're interrelated because really when you understand what we mean by the one thing or what churches have said about the resurrection of Jesus, this will have a lot to do with uh, understanding what people mean by the resurrection of people in uh, the sense of what it means uh, in relationship to death. And is there something beyond all of this? Now, I I did not want to do this show. Um, It's not so much that I'm afraid. It's that it is still something that is in process. And it's very interesting that by getting some questions, we have a listener question really that frames the whole thing, uh, but also um, we have some emails that have come in. So these are these are all kind of swirling around, and, and it's time that I get to business responding. And uh, really, this is something that has been a thread through my research and my teaching because I've dealt with history, the history of ideas, the history of philosophy. And so you can see how, especially in the European West, Christian philosophy and Christian historiography has often uh, been so tied up with understanding uh, not only the possibility uh, that there are some kind of historical and philosophical arguments to prove the Christian faith, perhaps, but also that so much of what we understand about the early church uh, requires sophisticated uh, historiography, requires Uh, a lot of, uh, uh, not speculation, uh, but hypothesis. Uh, And uh, and, uh, there's a lot of mystery there because what we find is that because Christianity becomes dominant, it actually has some challenges that other, uh, you know, mystery religions might not. Uh, That is, if there's a weird belief system that's just out there, and doesn't really threaten you, you don't have as much of an incentive to uh, squash it. But when there is a viewpoint that is closer to yours, and there is a struggle in your community or in your society to define uh, a religion or an ideology, then the stakes are higher. And what we find is some of the information that we might have wanted to have about the early church and what they thought is just no longer with us because the group that became the Orthodox, that is these uh, people who had a certain view of the resurrection, they eventually control the narrative. They might be wrong. 
uh, they might be right, but um, they do affect the historical record that we have. In any case, you know, growing up and going to college and uh, in grad school, it's always, there's this, there's this weird phenomenon where I always found that a lot of times professors would hide behind intellectual principles or, or, or pedagogical, that is, teaching principles, uh, so that they did not have to reveal what they actually thought about something. So you'd say to a, a Bible professor, you know, do, do, do you think this means that we, we live forever in heaven, or uh, is there a new earth? And they would often say, what do you think? Which is very good. But also I realized what they were doing is they were protecting their jobs sometimes, you know, um, Sometimes, in the context of church-related academics, you have highly educated people that have a difficult time answering honestly, and this is our opportunity for us to be able to do just that. It's not that we're better people. We're certainly not smarter. Um, I am not uh, somebody who has spent as much time on this as, as other specialists in uh, first-century classics and, and New Testament studies. Uh, but I do understand the big picture of how all of this plays out uh, through my training and, and subsequent study. Um, but because neither I nor Stacy are, are right now tied to a church or church-related college or university, we're kind of in this weird spot that we can answer candidly these kinds of questions. And the only thing holding us back is just that we realize that committing um, to this this approach in our podcast of just being able to share with you our thoughts and our honest and sincere perspectives as we travel through this life and, and seek to understand it. That's something that I wish I had more of. Uh, I know that there are people that think what they think they should think and speak it, but we come from a very specific kind of place where um, you may have traveled yourself, a, a place where the, the, the sadness of life is almost always uh, remedied, or at least we have tried to provide the resurrection as a remedy to almost everything growing up. You know, poverty, climate change, uh, nuclear war, uh, the death of a family member, like all of this stuff, uh, the way that we have tried to to just kind of make it go away was just to say, hey, well, don't worry, get the resurrection. Um, and so tinkering with that or even really looking too closely at what it means and the, uh, the support for these beliefs is something that could alienate us from some of our old friends. And... Um, you know, what I say uh, on the show a little bit uh, in, in the course of it is that, uh, you know, I say I know what the question is asking or I, I know what's behind this question. And uh, I want to say that this does not relate to the primary uh, questioner. Um, uh, it relates more to uh, the, the emails and other things that kind of came along with this. But we realize um, that in, in all good uh, goodwill – that if I answer this question in a way that does not fit with what becomes the Orthodox uh, perspective, uh, specifically that of the Roman Catholic Church, um, and uh, the Protestants really just stick with a lot of those same fundamental beliefs, 
uh, well, then that puts me outside of the camp. Um, it, this, this makes people maybe worry about my soul, but certainly worry about whether we're on the same team in some ways. And if you're asking that kind of question, I guess it's fair to say, if you don't want to listen to all the, <laughs> the two episodes and how long they are, um, you know, maybe not, right? Um, but I think it's important to also note that in the course of this show, you'll see why I think that the orthodox position is certainly something that people are free to believe, but not something that's necessarily as anchored in the biblical text or in history as we once thought. You know, this show is going to be in my emotional life as unsettling as the show on abortion because we know that it's, uh, you know, it's such a tricky business for us to be able to navigate these uh, issues sensitively. But we think it's a worthwhile endeavor. And more, more importantly, you know, there are just aren't that too, too many people that are in this position to have these discussions. Because to get where we're at, you have to spend most of your productive life on something, on this project, and then walk away from it. And um, that's not a good career move. And it's not something that people would do intentionally. But we want to make something out of it. We want to do something fun and uh, helpful with that weird place that we're in where having got a graduate degree and, and been a, a chair of history and, and d done all this uh, theology and philosophy stuff, now I'm slinging sushi and, uh, you know, uh, Stacy's, uh, you know, administering a, a wellness era, wellness center and doing the other stuff we do on the side. But that gives us this weird and fun place to view this very important question. And so today's show and uh, the subsequent uh, part two, I think reveal what I think is an entirely plausible view of the resurrection from the perspective of the early church and arguably one that Paul held, but one that may not be acceptable to credo Christians since Constantine. Um, so if you're listening though, from a secular perspective, this is sort of embarrassing Um I'm still embarrassed um, a little bit because, you know, we do affirm, Stacy and I, Nick Cave's lyric that death is not the end, um, whatever that means. Um, we still operate from this perspective of an enchanted world. I realize I could be wrong. I realize that this could just be the remnants of my old, uh, you know, supernatural worldview being brought up in evangelical America. Uh, but um, just so you know, if we're going too fast for you and you're wondering, where does this go? We, we don't know. We're open to that uh, future, but we are confident we will remain committed, you know, for the rest of our lives to the teachings of Jesus. Now we could change, but I just don't think, I just don't think that's possible. And we're also pretty darn confident that the cosmos contains more than we dream of in our naturalistic philosophies. Again, you know, could be that this is, this is just me getting deluded, but, uh, you know, uh, on the show, I'll mention instances of uncanny mystical experiences that are just too hard to explain away things that we've seen over the years, uh, what they call in the world of recovery, God shots, what Carl Gustav Jung calls synchronicity. Um, these things have been so profound that they're just really hard for us to even imagine shaking. And that said, the, the, understanding, the cognitive, theological, and philosophical understanding um, of this uh, topic is something that is kind of a, a little bit more complicated and nuanced than we expected. So you'll hear at the start of the show on this part one, I'm going to be talking about the 
more of the kind of development of the idea of the idea of the resurrection in the history of the church. And then in part two, I'm going to be looking at historical arguments for the resurrection, arguments that I used to spend a lot of time on in classes. Uh, it was part of our curriculum. Um, it's part of the curriculum for a lot of uh, theology classes, but also for uh, you know the times when I would teach um, introduction to philosophy, because a lot of early you know medieval and then medieval philosophy is is really like Thomas Aquinas tied in with theology. Now the listener question comes from Sam Sessa, and I want to also note that Sam gets the award for the best audio uh, and voiceover quality of any <laughs> any call in of, you know since the beginning of the show. Uh, so thank you very much for that, and and thank you for the thoughtful nature of the question, and. Um, May I also say that he he does ask a, a brief question at the end there about where we are with the uh, digital version of the uh, uh, of the Tao Te Ching that is almost done. I, I just need to note that every time we're almost done, a new commentary comes out or a translation comes out that we want to check against ours, and then we go back over and and uh, we kind of read through it again and, and retinker with it. And the same is true with our Bible study uh, twelve teachings of Jesus that help us to understand um, why we are free and, in fact, perhaps morally obligated to ghost the church we're in, um, uh, that has changed, you know, because we've been changing uh, in the process of writing this book. We're going through significant changes, you know, and so uh, we didn't want to release anything until we kind of found ourselves uh, at a place that we felt, you know, relatively stable. I think, friends, we always need to be growing, so that's cool. But, you know, we wanted to be able to be at a place that really reflected where we're at these days. After our transition out of, uh, you know, church-related college world, the ideas on this show are not exhaustive. You might get exhausted, but it's candid, and uh, it's going to be extensive. I'm going to try to go back over, uh, almost as a reflection, the sorts of things that I've been thinking about and talking about for a long time, but now doing it in a way that's, uh, you know, coming from a slightly different vantage point, one that has uh, been offered to me, you know, I've been given this beautiful opportunity, despite the fact that this opportunity uh, was painful, um, you know, to get to where I am now was painful, but I'm really delighted to be in this space now because I'm happy to be able to share what I've been thinking with you. And I'm so glad you're here still on this journey with me and with Stacy and with the rest of the crew. Uh, they all say hi. Thanks for being here. Let's go. All right, so we, uh, you know, have this question from a listener, and it's an important question, and I think I understand where it's coming from, and I definitely understand why it matters. The listener question is about the resurrection. And for many of us in church contexts, we have had to face, you know, modifying or at least the prospect of modifying our understanding of church and theology and Jesus. And we've been saying on this show, we really dig the way of Jesus. We are committed to following uh, his teachings. 
But we are not necessarily all that stoked up about the ways in which people have used the name of Jesus or the identity of uh, like the Christian church to, to bring about other emphases, emphases that Jesus didn't himself emphasize. And yet, I've myself said over the years, if you don't affirm with the Apostles' Creed the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the body, uh, and specifically the way we came to understand it in Orthodox Western Christian circles, the resurrection of a physical but also fleshly body, kind of like the body we have now. Yes, a body that's a little bit... uh, uh, more uh, supernaturally charged, perhaps, but but still a body. And anybody who says that they are a Christian but does not affirm that part of the resurrection surely doesn't count as a Christian. And I understand this, and I understand that this understanding of orthodoxy, uh, so uh, intimately tied to this idea of not only the resurrection of Jesus— but the resurrection of believers and really the resurrection of everybody uh, for the last judgment is an essential part of historic Orthodox Christianity, at least since, you know, the year 500. And so here's the listener question. Hey, Mallinson's Sam calling in from Greeley, Colorado, longtime listener, first time caller. Number one, thank you so much uh, for sharing your journey with honesty and authenticity Uh, You've helped me pursue truth and beauty since Virtue in the Wasteland, and I love y'all. Two, in your journey of following the way of Jesus, how has your understanding of the resurrection changed or transformed? Has any resource, event, conversation, anything like that changed or challenged your view of the historicity of the resurrection? I'm sorry, that question was just worded awkwardly. Okay, three. Is it possible to purchase an ebook version of your translation of the Tao? Finally, I'm here for the ride. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. May you experience deep peace upon peace. The rumors of grace, hope, and the redemption of all things are true. Everything is going to be okay. It's a tough question. And let me say it this way. Um, I am uh, holding everything tentatively. In, in other words... Um, If you look uh, maybe at Buddhism, you can kind of see a similar pattern that might help us understand the the nature of the question. If you go to the best we can understand of Siddhartha Gautama, the, the Buddha, who gets the movement going... It seems that he is very much um, one to de-emphasize these kind of questions about the afterlife, the gods, the supernatural. Um, You know, he seems to say things like, you know, I'm having a hard enough time figuring out how to exist here. How could I really know whether or not the saints exist after uh, death? How do I know if there is something like a heaven or or a God or gods? Uh, These are things that are unknown. And the Buddha is trying to offer a way to exist in the world where you don't have to worry about that so much. Um, It's something that you could add on, perhaps if you wanted, but that the focus uh, is different than what we think of as the the kind of standard understanding of religion in the West, where it really is about how do you get in right with the the Almighty so you don't go to hell and you, you make it to heaven. 
But in Buddhism, uh, you'll see after the Buddha, whatever we know about the historical Buddha, it does seem that you see this uh, development of Buddhism as it goes into the East, as it makes its way all the way to China and then to Japan. And in those contexts, you you see things like uh, Pure Land Buddhism, where, uh, yes, you could get enlightenment here in this world, but but part of this uh, experience could also be kind of sh- uh, there, there could be a shortcut in something like Pure Land Buddhism, where you just simply take refuge in uh, the Amida Buddha, the, the the manifestation of of grace, essentially forgiveness, and and by just taking refuge in that, you can hope to essentially live, you know, on a on a on a lotus flower in a, in a place of bliss. And that's a wonderful picture for a lot of people, gives people hope. But you see there that Buddhism itself has various schools within it. Often Buddhists will say there are various schools, but there aren't, um, there aren't heresies. And, and sometimes Buddhists will talk about heresies as it relates to the question, for instance, of um, the void and the annihilation of the self and these sorts of things. I mention this because at least prior to the establishment of creedal orthodoxy in Western Christianity, there were multiple perspectives on this question of resurrection. So if I'm asked, do I believe in the resurrection? I'll say right now, I'll hold this loosely and tentatively. Yes, I believe in the resurrection. I recognize maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm still stuck with too many old uh, ways of thinking uh, from my church experience. But it's not primarily that I believe in the resurrection because the church told me to. Um, in fact, like I said, whether it's because I'm naive or gullible or, or whatever, um, it, it has to do more with other uncanny experiences I've had. Um, my mother, for instance, had uh, a near-death experience that seemed pretty profound. Um, uh, my oldest, Augie, when we were uh, traveling, this isn't an afterlife thing, but it just was like a supernatural experience, saw uh, the manifestation of what seemed to be an evil spirit. He was three years old on uh, the hood of a car while I was experiencing a, uh, an incredible amount of fear. And, and so as I was experiencing this fear, he mentioned that he had this vision. I'm not against the supernatural. As I've uh, been unplugging from church and, and ghosting church, and Stacy's been doing the same, we've had to unpack a lot of these teachings that we just took for granted. And yet... Uh, for whatever reason, we prefer an enchanted worldview. Sometimes we think about this enchanted worldview in a way that is maybe parallel to a more naturalistic way of seeing things. Uh, maybe it's a, a symbolic world, uh, maybe understood best through the psychology of Carl Gustav Jung. But I'm not even going to share all the experiences that I've had that lead me to believe that there is some kind of existence beyond death. And yet I recognize, as the Buddha recognized, as 
I'll mention in a moment, a lot of the Hebrew Bible authors also recognized that there's a lot of unknown. And if you go to the Bible itself, you'll start to see that there are multiple interpretations of uh, life after death that it develops over time. Uh, really, in the Hebrew Bible, you have no talk really about the afterlife. You don't really get it till um, Daniel. Uh, when you see with Daniel this understanding of, of a kind of life after death in, in resurrection type terms. And, you know, as, as a, a person who's looked at the history of religions, it seems that this coincides with the influence of Persian thought. And the Persians, uh, through Zoroastrianism, had this idea of a great cosmic drama where there would be a last judgment. And that people who serve the sight of the light would be uh, continuing in that existence in the light. And those who were in the darkness would be, you know, judged along uh, with those in darkness or the forces of darkness. So um, uh, it seems like there are these other thoughts that get brought into a... Uh, a world that is emerging from ancient Israel that emphasizes Torah as a way to live well in the land. Um, in Isaiah, you have this idea of um, a, like this, this kind of new heaven and new earth. Uh, but in that realm, it's not so much about the dead, it seems, but about a world where people can hope to live to 100 where we live at peace with nature, the lion and the lamb kind of stuff. Uh, but, but outside of Daniel and a couple other little rumors of the afterlife, you just don't see it in, the, uh, in what we call the Old Testament. All of a sudden, by the time you get to the Gospels, you jump from you know, the Old Testament to Matthew, all of a sudden, you see this conversation about you know, heaven and hell and the afterlife. What's interesting, though, about this, and I think this will be a main part of where I want to go with this, if we affirm the resurrection, it might be helpful for us to look at the early belief in resurrection as found in the earliest New Testament writings, and those earliest writings are from Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, not the Gospels. So however you date the Gospels, you're looking at maybe Mark around 65 to 70, um, and then 70 to 90 for the uh, other Gospels. But we can think of Paul writing around 50, the year 50. And therefore, even though, you know, we've already talked a little bit on the show about the ways in which we're a little bit more comfortable with the sayings, traditions of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount that comes through not only in the uh, Synoptic Gospels um, and then the teachings of Jesus as found in John, but teachings that, uh, that come into other texts like, you know, the gospel of Thomas, which might not have a lot of historic value, but it does preserve some of the forms of the sayings, the sayings of Jesus. So generally speaking, Stacey and I are more interested in what Jesus had to say than Paul's kind of interpretation into a Hellenistic uh, Jewish way of thinking. But Paul being earlier is historically very helpful if we're looking at the, the history of the development of this idea of the resurrection. Um, 
I, I remember when I was at an interfaith lunch that I used to attend as a, as a evangelical Christian representative. <laughs> I was the only one who would really do it uh, alongside of, uh, you know, folks from other religious traditions sponsored by the University of Denver. This happened right after, you know, uh, 9-11. So the University of Denver was assembling you know, religious leaders to have these ecumenical discussions, interfaith discussions. And I remember uh, people were kind of making fun of me <laughs> for um, being kind of in that world of, of resurrection and life after death in a, in a rather literal way. And uh, I said, well, okay, but here's this guy over here. He's an Episcopal priest. He was a progressive Ep Episcopal priest, uh, but he was also high church. And so I asked him, I said, hey, why are you leaving me here to, to struggle with this question? Don't you weekly at least confess the resurrection of the body? And he said, yeah, I confess it. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what it means. And I thought that was pretty uh, evasive. I thought that was disingenuous. Why are you still a priest if you don't believe in this? And yet, uh, the more I've had to look at the development of this idea of resurrection, the more I've come to realize that he was not so far off track. Now, I'm the kind of cat who'd probably never be comfortable being a priest confessing something that didn't really ring true or didn't express what I actually thought. Uh, but <laughs> that's another choice, uh, and, and it's a different kind of question. Now, again, I believe in resurrection, I think, uh, more biblically even than creedal orthodoxy. Again, I said that a lot of my understanding of, of the kind of existence beyond death, uh, or at least these hunches I have about existence beyond death, have more to do with direct experience, mystical experience, than uh, the Bible or orthodoxy. But biblically, I think, um, I'm actually very, I'm very interested in what Paul has to say about resurrection. But what Paul has to say about resurrection is not what I've taught, certainly not what I had heard and not what I have taught up until very recently uh, about the resurrection. I would have said um, up until uh, maybe a year ago that the most you know, central thing to the Christian kerygma, the, the proclamation, is that Jesus rose as a body and that this is something distinct from the Gnostic view and that the Gnostic view is that the body is bad and the spirit is good. And Christians say, no, the body's good. And I like that. That's important. Embodiment's important. Taking seriously our physical existence, taking uh, seriously wood and splinter and blood and sweat and water and wine and stones. These are important. And I still think this, but the nature of resurrection, um, as I understood it, would best be summed up by uh, the author John Updike, um, who in 1960 wrote a poem called Seven Stanzas at Easter. And it is uh, this, I think, very good expression of the, the orthodox view. And I'm using orthodox not to mean the right view, but the view that becomes dominant in the West through the Roman Catholic Church and then later through the Protestant bodies that still kind of stay with that mode of thought. I'll leave the Eastern Church out of it for a, for a moment. Uh, but here's what John Upst uh, Updike's poem says. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule renit, 
the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumb and toes, the same valved heart, that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of the endured might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse, will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel. Weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a defined loom, let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Now, compelling poem. I get it. I've affirmed it. And it is, you know, something to think about. You don't want to be unwakened, uh, awakened in an unthinkable hour and embarrassed that, in fact, this thing that was true, you denied. And you denied it because you were just, you know, somebody who didn't want to get duped. Gotcha. But if you go back to this question of the real flesh, right, like the very specific type of flesh that we understand with amino acids and molecules and all this... Um, this indeed expresses Christian orthodoxy as we have it, but what I've come to understand is that it is, it is not exactly the view that Paul had, and it is not the only view uh, expressed by people who were followers of Jesus in the first few centuries after uh, he lived. Uh, it's just that it's the view that was the only one authorized and uh, established uh, after Constantine, and the other views, uh, you know, get not only, you know, sidelined, but, but often persecuted and the writings get uh, destroyed for the most part. So um, I, I think there, there's some interesting things here. Um, let's just start with Paul for a second, right? Paul is somebody obviously in the circles of the Pharisees. Now, I know that a lot of my my Bible scholar friends would say that uh, what I'm about to say is, is not the case, but I find it really compelling. Um, at least it's suggestive and interesting, provocative, that one of the main d distinctions you can see right there in the New Testament, you also see it with Josephus and, and other historians of the first century uh, Judaism. You've got the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, and you have the Pharisees that do. And when we grow up in evangelical Christianity, we often thought of the Sadducees as being sad <laughs> because they didn't, you know, they, you, they were sad. You see, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they were kind of modernist liberals and the Pharisees were the conservatives, but that was uh, anachronistic. That was, that was not 
how it was. The Sadducees thought that because they were sticking to the, the Pentateuch, where you don't see this kind of afterlife, um, you, you see in the Hebrew Bible in general um, quite the opposite. You see um, this idea of dust to dust. You see um, a kind of uncertainty about where we go in Ecclesiastes. Uh, some people point to Job, you know, um, but Job seems to be more worried about um, dying and people thinking that he was punished by God and he just he just wants to be vindicated. Um, and uh, so uh, Psalm, uh, the Psalms sometimes uh, are unsure whether there's an afterlife. Um, they maybe have heard rumors of it, maybe in other cultures, maybe within their own culture. But ultimately, the Sadducees are on pretty strong ground that that historic uh, faith in their tradition, in their textual tradition, uh, before the Persians and the Hellenistic uh, world get kind of in, in integrated into it, um, that the that the point is how to live righteously in this life and to have blessings in in this life, uh, to follow Torah, and the Pharisees, and this is the part where. Um, people would disagree with me. The Pharisees, the etymology of Pharisee, uh, some have suggested it might come from the, uh, the word Farsi, right? Where Farsi is per, what we use today to talk about the Persian language. So there's a way in which the Pharisees were, even if they didn't, even if it wasn't based on the name, the Pharisees represented something that seemed foreign to traditional Jews. Um, and something foreign that might be understood as uh, Zoroastrian, right, in Persian. And uh, therefore, it is suggestive, it's interesting that when you get right to the, the first chapters of the New Testament, it's not chronological, but in Matthew, you see um, the Zoroastrian magi, these, these Zoroastrian uh, sages, they recognize Jesus as this cosmic um, presence, as Messiah of some sort, uh, but the but the the Jews themselves do not. Certainly, like Herod doesn't, right? So it's not an anti-Jewish thing necessarily, but it is this idea that that the Pharisees are on the right track, uh, and and that others can see this, but those uh, who are stubbornly tied into the anti-resurrection uh, worldview like the, the Sadducees, are missing out on something. And you can see this in the, in the New Testament. Certainly you see it in, in Jesus. Um, when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, they're kind of asking questions, right? Like, uh, well, what if there's uh, seven people, seven dudes that married the same women and they, they keep dying uh, in the resurrection? You know, who's going to be the husband? And Jesus says, you, you don't get it. Right, like that's not um, that's not the nature of the resurrection. So, so from from the kind of biblical side of things, Jesus is brought into that world, and and it seems like everything suggests that Jesus indeed believed in resurrection, but uh, he he very clearly believes in it in a way that uh, we're more like angels, right? So, so if you just look to that exchange between Jesus and people that are questioning this idea of the 
um, of the resurrection, Jesus is saying, uh, don't be silly. Uh, you know, you're not going to be having sex in heaven. That's not the nature of that existence. Look, that's very different from what I was taught, right? So it's straight there. It's straight there in the in the in the Bible as it as it narrates Jesus's teachings. Uh, but we didn't really integrate that well. Uh, we were saying, no, we're going to have like real bodies. Jesus has a real body, and it and it's just the same, only better. But Jesus says we're going to be like the angels. We're not, you know, going to be sexual beings in that way. And then that suggests that our physicalness um, would be different. But uh, I threatened to talk about Paul, <laughs> then I failed to do it. Um, there, there's a lot that you can look at um, in the writings of Paul. But again, Paul's writing um, very early on. And I don't want to go through all of it. You can research it yourself. Um, I'll, I'll provide some links at protectyournoggin.org to kind of give you some opportunities for further reading into kind of the development of these ideas and, and how they end up in the writings of Paul. But Paul, again, Paul's very much part of the, the world of the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And uh, so even though the Pharisees are often the kind of the the bad guys in exchanges with Jesus, that's misleading in many ways because the reason they're having these encounters is because they're, they've got a lot in common, right? So uh, sometimes, you know, Marxists will fight with anarchists and uh, they'll spend more time debating ideas often than, um, than they will with, with uh, right-wing Republicans because they just see the world in such different ways. There's not a lot to discuss. So here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. And I want you to try to kind of read along with me. Um, this is in the New Revised Standard Version, but it doesn't really matter. I want you to try to read along with me in a way that um, uh, would be like coming to this for the first time, right? N not learning about the resurrection first and then, you know, putting this into that framework, but just letting this one be the gospel according to Paul. Like this is what he says is the game, uh, the, the, the hope. Uh, verse uh, uh, 1, starting of chapter 15, by the way, the, the subtitle is not in the original. The resurrection of Christ is how the Bibles uh, that we have today often label the section, that it's about the resurrection of Christ, but it's not exactly that. Um, chapter 15, verse 1, um, now I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand through which you also are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. Now, by the way, the salvation we're going to find later um, is an interesting one. You are being saved because you understand your deathlessness, that you have uh, a claim, you have an inheritance that is um, eternity and is deathlessness. There's good reason to believe that Paul uh, thinks that uh, there are some who will understand this, uh, they're, they're going, the ones who are going to be saved now. And then in some way, the whole cosmos is going to be saved and everything in it and everybody in it. So Paul is a kind of universalist, but uh, a universalist, it seems that we'll see that there's a difference between those who are especially saved, those who know um, that there's something beyond death, uh, 
this idea that if you die before you die, you won't have to die when you die. Paul seems to be preaching this, but there are people who will not understand that, that they will experience death as death and as the end, but will ultimately be brought back into reconciliation with God. All things will be made new. This is um, what I think Paul's doing. Verse three, for I handed on to you as a first importance, what I in turn had received that Christ died for our sins, according with the scriptures in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. All right. So let's see what we got so far. So Jesus died. He died for our sins. This is important for Paul, some kind of, um, like lamb of God. And, uh, but then he appears to, uh, Peter and the disciples, um, the, the, the 12 and, um, but he appears to them and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have died. So this is pretty strong. Here's a resurrection. Uh, and usually, um, this has been something that we've looked to in evangelical circles as evidence that Paul is claiming there are eyewitness accounts to a bodily physical resurrection. Jesus is walking around and teaching. This was very much like, um, a, a resuscitated corpse moving about and, um, and that there are a lot of people around that could corroborate this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one unto, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul's claiming he's also an apostle, even though he never hung out with Jesus. And even though he wasn't there for those, you know, like, um, kind of significant stories, like the 500 people who all saw Jesus. But he sees Jesus and he says, um, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, whether then it was I or they, so we proclaimed, uh, so we so we proclaim, and so you believed. So there's this proclamation that Jesus appeared after his death. Um, and in, in appearing after his death, he indicated that there was something beyond the grave, better than what you see in the Old Testament with uh, Samuel and the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor, King Saul, consults this, this necromancer. She stirs up uh, the, the ghost of Samuel out of Sheol. There's no indication that this is a demon. That's what my evangelical upbringing taught. But no, there's this idea that uh, in the ancient uh, Israelite context, it was kind of like Homer, where you see um, uh, the world of the dead. Uh, there are these shades. It's a, like a dark place. It's kind of a sleep. Um, it's not really fun. <laughs> Um, and really, it's kind of like these little whispers of uh, kind of ghosts in a coma, essentially. And with Homer, you know, you've got to you know, offer a little bit of blood and the blood can revive uh, a spirit so that they can have a conversation with you. And then they go back to, to Hades in the case of the Greeks or Sheol in the case of the Hebrews. So um, that's not what's being uh, discussed here. This is something closer to the stuff that we find later in the uh, Hebrew Bible, like I said, Daniel. And it is a more 
concrete, I don't know if concrete's the word, but a more resurrection type understanding even than you find in Isaiah, in the second part of Isaiah. But um, but they use Isaiah and, and that imagery of the new heaven and the new earth to talk about this idea of resurrection. So very clearly, again, if you're asking, does Paul believe in the resurrection of the dead? Yes, he does believe in the resurrection of the dead. And not only that, verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Now, by the way, a lot of the time in evidential apologetics, we mentioned this part of Paul uh, specifically to say that you have to do apologetics because if we cannot prove that the, Jesus historically rose from the dead as a body, then, um, then Christianity falls apart. So you have to do evidential apologetics. Uh, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, uh, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who, all, who also have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Uh, there's this idea that the prophets and then through Jesus, there's this promise that despite all of the bleakness of society under the beast of Rome, there will come a day when Jerusalem becomes the center of life for all the nations, and Paul and others, even non-followers of Jesus in the, the Pharisees, are hopeful, uh, and there is this widespread belief in um, resurrection of some sort. They're very hopeful that the dead will also get to enjoy um, this new reality that is coming about that God will make happen. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Now, this was often used to support vicarious substitutionary atonement. We all die in Adam, meaning we're all going to go to hell because of Adam. But if we believe in Jesus, we can go to heaven. Uh, but that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. I, I it seems pretty clear that what he's saying is all die in Adam, like we biological beings with the flesh of Adam and, and the similar kind of flesh of Adam um, are doomed. Uh, we are mortal. Uh, but uh, through the union with Christ, um, the first fruits are brother, you know, the uh, God's only begotten son who can pull us up um, and bring us into his realm, we are made alive and um, we are made alive in this case, not even primarily because of substitutionary atonement, but because he is going to go on and, um, you know, yeah, like as Jesus says in the gospels, prepare a place for us. But each in its own order, verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So first Jesus is raised. Um, then, um, Jesus is going to return, um, and then he's going to bring those who believed in him and, and, and were part of his way, they are going to be saved and they're going to rule. They're going to rule over the angels, by the way. Um, but then in the end, um, 
everybody, G- Jesus and, and the followers, um, they're going to get the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so in verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. So this is great, you know, Babylon falling. I love this. This is good, you know, Rasta <laughs> against Babylon kind of stuff. Um, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this cycle of life and death, the, the bleakness of existence, the pain, the suffering of this fleshly existence, this is going away. Uh, verse 27, for God has put all things in subjugation, uh, on subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. There's some interesting stuff there that we can't get into, but uh, let me go back over that. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? That's a fun one. Mormons dig that part. Um, I, I think partly what's going on, uh, it is an obscure kind of thing. Uh, but again, people are worried. Well, if we who believe in Jesus are going to have this blessing, what about grandpa? He was a cool guy. Grandma was neat. Um, but they too, there's some kind of hope for them as well. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Um, so it's kind of a practice that they're engaged in. So it, taken for granted by Paul. And then verse 30, and why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. That is as certain brothers and sisters as my boasting of you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought with wild animals at Ephesus with a merely human perspective, uh, what would I have gained by it? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we will die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Sober up as you rightly ought to, and sin no more, for some people have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right. So, so far, you can probably incorporate this into your standard Sunday school. Verse 35 gets a little more interesting. Uh, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, don't read on for a second and say, what were you given in your catechism or, you know, growing up? The answer is a body just like mine, Maybe I'm 25, I'm in my prime, uh, I'm my ideal self, mature but youthful, and I get to live like that, you know, forever, but with a real physical body. That's precisely what uh, I was taught. That's precisely what I told students the Christian tradition teaches, whether you believe it or not. But I don't know why until recently I never just read this um, at face value. We're already establishing that Paul believes in something called the resurrection. But then when he's asked, what exactly does this mean? What kind of resurrection? He says, essentially, to the thing that I had heard, verse 36, fool, (laughs) what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. All right, so this this body uh, is going to die still so far so good. Verse 37, and as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Now, what do these things do? You put a piece of wheat or you you put a, a seed in the ground and it comes up not as a new seed or even a supernatural seed or a magical seed or a seed with a halo that can play harp really well. 
and sing 15 verses of uh, our God is an awesome God or whatever your, your favorite hymn is in heaven. No, um, the, the resurrection is comparable to a seed in that whatever it means for us, we are destined to become something connected, but f- exponentially grander, more amazing, more astounding. Verse 38, God gives it a body, the seed, the flesh, as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. And now he's going to go into something to, to make his point very clear. Verse 39, not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing and that of the earthly is another. Now, if you want to Google something kind of funny and embarrassing that I did a a while back, you can Google uh, my name and then demon semen. This is where I examined uh, angelology and demonology in the uh, Reformed and Lutheran writers of the 16th century. And I was kind of surprised to find that they just couldn't break out from their uh, Neoplatonic, kind of Hellenized Greek way of thinking um, because... Um, it's pretty clear in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, that you have these um, otherworldly beings, these, uh, the Beneha um, uh, Elohim, these sons of God, heavenly beings that have some kind of ethereal body, and that this body is able to have sex with physically biological women, creating babies that are kind of monstrous hybrids, uh, giants known as the Nephilim. And uh, you don't have to believe this is true, but you probably should believe that's what they're saying in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, because it's pretty obvious that that's what they're saying. And it's compatible with all the stuff going on um, around them in the ancient Near East. So um, what changes is, uh, you know, here's Paul still acting in an ancient Near Eastern worldview, even though he's far more exposed to Greek thought in his travels and as a Roman citizen, he's going to be exposed to these other ideas. But what he's saying is something that uh, the kind of Platonic, Neoplatonic worldview can't accept. And that is that, that uh, there, are, there are heavenly bodies, that these are physical things. The angels have physical reality. It's just a different kind of physical reality. It's thinner, it's more ethereal, it's finer, but it is still, some kind of substance, again, something we were never taught, and, um, um, and something that was just antithetical to the thinking of, say, Calvin and Luther uh, that I looked at later on, that you just can't have that. Therefore, women can't have uh, babies with angels because these are these non-physical things. So how can you have a physical baby out of that? Um, and then he continues to highlight this, verse 41, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So if nothing else, the kind of body we get is at least a different kind of body in that it's probably not going to have to poop. <laughs> Um, it's not going to have to be subject to decay and uh, aging and, and renewal. So it's obviously different there. It is sown, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
Here's the more pointed piece. Verse 44, it is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Adam becomes a people like us, right? And we are then in that line. But then again, through uniting with the last Adam, Jesus, Jesus goes on to become a life-giving spirit. He's, he becomes like a, a, a bigger spiritual being than, uh, than the physical body would suggest. In verse 46, Paul says, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. That's very interesting. And it's um, also something that you find in, um, also something you find in the Gospel of Thomas, by the way, and something that you find in Taoism. That is, that you don't have this um, consciousness so much that is inserted into the physical but rather the consciousness is a superabundant, um, emergent quality, uh, something that is more than the sum of the parts, um, something th- that is a flower out of the substrate of the physical. All right. So we, we are given these physical bodies in Adam, but then we move on to transcend them and follow Jesus into this higher existence. The first man was from earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. As one of dust, so are those uh, uh, who are of dust. And as one of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in uh, the image of the one of dust, we will also bear the image of the one of heaven. Verse 50, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. No, he's going back to the beginning of the verse. What kind of, phys- what kind of bodies or what kind of resurrection is this? And he's making it clear as crystal that this is not a resurrection of flesh and blood. I don't know why I never saw it. I know that we were given things, uh, you know, understanding of this to say, Flesh and blood means the works righteousness that comes out of the flesh and so forth. But I, I think he's very clearly just answering a, a metaphysical question. And he's saying um, that it's just going to be a different kind of thing. Verse 51, look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Um, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to look at other places as well, and and I can't get into all of it, but this has something to say for our interpretation of Jesus' resurrection, at least in Paul's theology and what he spread around the Mediterranean. And that is that, yes, um, Jesus is the first fruits. Through Jesus, we can find this redemption. We'll be united to God. There will be the end to death and the reconciliation of all things. 
And uh, it's better to do this now than later um, to avoid uh, judgment, uh, even though judgment might not be permanent. But again, the idea is that this, um, that this new existence is different from our existence. Now, I'll get to the Gnostics in a second, but what, what this means is that um, it seems that Jesus is suggesting uh, something about his understanding of the resurrection uh, of Jesus and uh, this helps, I think, explain how he can see himself as an apostle. To be an apostle, you know, you got to be able to claim that Jesus told you something. Paul is insistent that Jesus told him something. He's not even sure that Peter and James, the so-called pillars back in Jerusalem, uh, get it. And he doesn't really care because whatever he saw, whatever he experienced in a trance— in an ecstatic state, was so profound that he thought, well, this is, uh, this is something really um, so powerful that even if an angel or a, a so-called apostle told him that he was wrong, he was still going to stick to his guns. Interesting and, and fun enough. That's great. Um, Paul himself, uh, I think, would say with us even, uh, with Stacy and I, uh, you might need to ghost church for the sake of the the gospel. Um, now, I think in some cases, Paul might've been wrong about some things. Um, I at least hold, hold that open. Um, but for the purposes of, of this question, if we're to follow the tradition, um, I don't see any reason why I have to affirm something that Paul did not affirm to qualify as somebody who believes or can confess this idea of resurrection. Um, because it seems like Paul is basically saying we are going to transform into supernatural beings, kind of like a, a acorn becomes an oak tree. Our body is nothing when compared to the the supernatural um, kind of semi divine kind of godlike existence that we will have in the next existence, and that we will rule over the angels and and the whole cosmos is going to be kind of amplified in this way. It's a cool picture, uh, whether or not it's it's. Uh, something believable to you, set that aside for a second. But uh, the idea is, well, what did Paul see? Paul saw Jesus saying, you know, why, in Acts, why are you kicking against the goad? Why are you persecuting my people? He has this profound experience and he thinks therefore that he can be an apostle because really the apostles themselves didn't really get it until, you know, this idea uh, until after, um, the crucifixion. So they're kind of sad and they, they don't get it and they're de defeated, disappointed. And then people start talking about this experience they had. And uh, this experience, if it is something that is not as concrete as um, you'll find um, in Luke, right, where Luke talks about Jesus eating fish, um, that seems to be uh, very specifically something included in Luke, which was written later than Mark and, and definitely later than Paul, uh, probably to push against the Gnostic interpretation that uh, kind of isn't so excited about the physical body and also believed in something called docetism uh, from the, the word dokeo, which means to appear or to seem. They believe that Jesus seemed to rise from the dead, but not in a physical way. So by the time you get to, to, uh, to Luke 
Um, and then John, which seems to depend on uh, Luke, you know, he's aware of Luke. Uh, those later writings uh, do include this idea of a very physical resurrection <clears throat> in a in a body that's pretty similar to uh, the one we would have now. Thomas, you know, in John, p- p- puts his hand in the side uh, of Jesus, and Thomas doesn't believe it. Um, but but apparently, uh, folks were skeptical about it, uh, especially. Um, uh, in the early moments, you know, after the resurrection, but people start to have these appearances. They're very profound, but if you even look at like the road to Emmaus, um, and so forth, it seems more, uh, like a kind of this, and I'm not trying to denigrate it by saying this, but a kind of like a Greek mythological concept where Jesus will kind of like become a person or kind of embody a person or, um, they'll be transformed into Jesus and then he'll pop back out. Something you would see in, I don't know, something like Ovid, but, um, but not as precisely uh, physical uh, or, and I shouldn't even say physical, not as fleshly as we'd made it out to be that it, it is something a little bit weirder and um, more ecstatic than we would normally teach. And look, this is a big thing. Um, When I say a big thing, um, there is, I think, really interesting evidence that that there may have been other stuff in the wine that folks were using for communion in the early church. Um, And... um, you know, I'll, I'll link to some of that, and I, I definitely want to address that at another time. Um, but whether or not there were uh, what we what anthropologists of religion call entheogens—that is, like plant medicine, essentially—that creates an, a an altered perspective on the world. Um, whether they were using that, whether Paul was doing something like that, uh, or early Christians. Um, I think it's entirely possible, uh, primarily because uh, we'll see, like you know, later on with Rumi, when people are talking about wine in the ancient world, wine is not just fermented grape juice; it's wine plus other ingredients that they might throw in to enhance effects or to actually, um, you know, use the wine as a as like a medium to convey those other effects um, from something else. Could be you know, uh, cannabis oil, for instance, uh, something uh, like hauma or something. And there's debates amongst uh, scholars about what kinds of um, kind of shamanistic plant medicines might have made their way into uh, religious visions of Greece, Rome, and, and the ancient Near East. But the point is, you can also do these things through fasting, through meditation, through dancing, through, um, uh, through long periods in the wilderness, uh, through sleeplessness. There, there are all sorts of ways to get into a visionary mode. Paul gets into a visionary mode. We underemphasize this in the um, uh, in the Christian West. We in fact discourage it. We say no, don't get into a, uh, uh, an ecstatic trance-like state to get your revelations from God. But um, I can just tell you, having meditated, having um, had mystical experiences that uh, may be in my mind or maybe something even greater. Um, I totally understand what he's talking about, that you can have these profound experiences that are very, very real. Um, uh, as an example, 
Um, you know, there was uh, a time when uh, Sydney and I were both, um, we were up, we were as a family, we were up uh, in um, Big Bear and uh, we both um, had an experience of uh, a perception of our, our late son, Augie, uh, my late son, Augie and, and her fiance um, kind of coming to visit us. And um, it was a positive experience, but I didn't mention it. But then once we started mentioning it, we both realized we had it. Now, uh, of course, this could be just um, uh, us coping with our grief. Uh, but my point is, it is a very common experience um, to have this um, uh, this sense of presence. And it is common for people to have a more profound uh, version than what Sydney and I experienced. Uh, that is actual... Um, visions. You could call them hallucinations, but they are manifestations. And I've had students um, experience manifestations of their grandparents. Um, and uh, I've seen th things kind of similar to this. Um, and I, I say this at the risk of people thinking, oh, well, this person is uh, untrustworthy uh, because uh, they have these experiences. No, no. Uh, I'm not claiming that they are indications of uh, a firm reality. I think they're interesting and provocative, and, and I don't uh, dismiss them out of hand. But my point is, is that we underemphasize how much of this was going on. It's so common that Paul has to say, hey, hey, slow it down. You're doing all this speaking in tongues, and you're doing all this prophecy, and it's, it's just getting kind of out of hand. But that visionary mode of the early church was was pretty common. So in that visionary mode, it would be very, it would be very important and very probable, actually, that people would be able to reconcile their disappointment um, with uh, the death of Jesus uh, and the, uh, the disappointment coming after they had had so much hope in the kingdom that he was after that they needed to find a space to be able to still have hope, um, to still hope for a kingdom beyond the grave, right? Now, um, this is important because, um, because I think people that uh, are interested in the way of Jesus and interested in kind of a, a spirituality can recognize that there is this kind of global hunch that there is a kind of space, a kairos, a, a time outside of time to which we can all be connected. And that this is reconciliation to the core, to the, to the Cora, to the Tao, to the source, to uh, reality, right? Um, and whatever that means. And this is, uh, this is affirmed by Paul. This is by, affirmed by the early Christians. That death is not the end. That we should persecute. Uh, we, should be, uh, we should be persevering in the face of persecution, and so forth. And it is, of, and, and is therefore a very important aspect of Christian proclamation. And uh, on days when I'm feeling uncertain about that, I recognize that I don't qualify very well as a Christian, although I remain a firm, uh, unwavering uh, fan of the way of Jesus and his mystical and ethical way. The doctrinal pieces, sometimes, you know, I have to hold that intention with other beliefs. I'm not sure right? Like maybe, but, and I'm just saying that just because I'm trying to shoot straight with you. This is where, where I'm at. But I'm going to pause there and say, 
if you just want to know, all right, what am I thinking about this? And, and Stacy's, you know, in a, in a similar mindset. Um, and what does the, you know, biblical narrative say? You could stop here. If you want to go a little bit farther than we could mention, what, what seems to have gone on that got suppressed? And, and that is sometimes called Gnostic teaching. But remember, Gnostic, Gnosticism isn't really um, a thing. It's not like um, a, a, an organization that somebody could be, you know, a part of. Um, it's, uh, it's more like, um, uh, like a set of teachings that de-emphasize um, a lot of this, like, uh, physical promise of um, Jesus returning. And, and I think this is a big piece that should also be in, in part of this. Um, I remember John Dominic Cross and really pissed me off one time when I saw him at uh, American Academy of Religion. And he was saying that be- that early Christian belief in the, um, in the return of Jesus to establish a physical earthly kingdom is a betrayal of Jesus teaching. I thought that was really upsetting. Like, Crossan was saying, Jesus taught that there was a kingdom that could be inaugurated now, that it was good news for the poor here on earth, and that when people despaired of that kingdom, they started to go back to the idea that the apostles had that like, there's this, okay, okay, we're supposed supposed to recognize that the last will be first and the first will be last. We're going to suffer on this planet for a while. We're going to be persecuted, but very shortly... Um, Jesus is going to return, and then we're going to have all those things that we wanted originally. Domination, power, hierarchy, authority, Peter's at the top, you know, who's sitting at the right hand of Jesus. Jesus, remember, said, you're not supposed to lord it over people, so that's a dumb, bad question. And yet, the church says, okay, now can we have power and glory? (laughs) Right? Like Jesus says, give up, give it up. Well, we're not just supposed to give it up now. Like that's, that's not the game, right? That's that, that I think that the, the core teaching, but for Crossan, he suggests that this idea that Jesus is going to come back physically, he's going to sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem. He's going to rule the world physically. All the Christians get to be vindicated and go like punish or, or subdue the nations that don't believe in Jesus. All of that is an unhealthy, arguably for, for Crossan, and I'm kind of persuaded that this idea, at least as an emphasis, is unhealthy to say, okay, we don't get to dominate others now, but then someday we will. We don't get to have all these like earthly pleasures now, but someday we will. Um, as Bob Marley uh, reflected uh, in a Redemption Song, some people think great God come from the sky, take away everything and make everybody feel high. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth and then you will see the light. Now, Bob Marley, uh, I think at died in the good graces of the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox Church and so forth. But he was saying that the, that the key message of Jesus is not to wait until some other time, um, uh, but you'll stand up for your rights here and now. You're going to bring uh, down Babylon uh, as part of the mission of Jesus through subtle subversion, art, music, whatever. You're going to chant down Babylon. But in any case, um, this idea that... that the church eventually in collaboration with the empire is going to pull back on its actual core message and say, we're never going to be able to fix the, the state now. We're not going to fix poverty now. So we're just going to 
we're going to punt <laughs> until the afterlife. And, and, and I, that, I think that idea of the betrayal is important. And I think also just at a spiritual level, if you believe in the resurrection of the body in the traditional sense uh, of Western Christianity, like fine, I don't, it's not a problem. I think the only spiritual warning though I would have is to say, uh, as we've said before on the show, that if that is the emphasis and you don't get to experience joy, peace, enlightenment that starts now, if you don't get to experience the mystical reality now, that's to me a red flag that you're that you're not getting the full deal. You're not getting the full gospel, to use the language of Paul. And um, and yet, if you think that you know the the world is only materialistic, then certainly you're not in the same way of thinking as Paul, right? So um, one last thing on the, like the, the traditions, there were a bunch of Christians floating around, or I'm sorry, there were a bunch of people that claimed to be followers of Jesus, first, second, third century, that were um, very convinced that they could be leaders in the church or bishops or whatever, if, if they'd be allowed to by the proto-Orthodox, but they had a difference of opinion. And uh, they had this opinion that Jesus had a different kind of uh, resurrection, a more spiritual kind of resurrection. And um, often they're associated with the Gnostics. Some Gnostics said really wacky things. Um, they believed in 365 gods. They had all these, uh, you know, kind of strange teachings. Sometimes those teachings were intentionally strange just to kind of troll <laughs> the Orthodox, you know especially when they tend to um, make heroes out of people like uh, Judas to kind of throw things on their head to say that Judas really got the point. And, but um, for a moment, think about the gospel of Thomas. It, it's not too hard to read the whole thing. It's interesting. I think Stacy and I are going to do a reflection on the gospel of Thomas uh, sooner than later. But one thing that's interesting about the gospel of Thomas is Thomas is um, something that gives us pretty interesting and pretty helpful um, sayings of Jesus that you can find in other texts, but they're put into different terms, you know, just slightly different terms. Ultimately, um, Thomas, the gospel of Thomas seems to suggest that there is something far more amazing, uh, but far more, maybe we would say spiritual um, in terms of what we are expecting, what we're hoping for, both for the transformation of Jesus and for ourselves, this kind of cosmic Christ idea. And there's not a lot of the wacky stuff in Thomas other than the mysticism, um, you know. Um, what do I mean? Um, if mysticism is an understanding of the, uh, like the unity with the divine and uh, therefore the unity between ourselves and, and all of the world uh, and, and perhaps this realization bringing a kind of liberation or salvation, um, you, you see that straight in the Gospel of Thomas. Um, it's probably the case that the Gospel of Thomas is drawing from uh, sayings gospel called Q or some, you know, some kind of collection of sayings that was independent but understood by Mark. So Gospel of Thomas is, is responding to Mark probably, and to a sayings uh, gospel. And the gospel of Thomas as we have it is probably something that was edited to make it a little bit more Gnostic than it originally had been. So uh, imagine that the gospel of Thomas you can find online, um, such as through Marquette University. This, 
you know, this can be helpful, but always remember that there's probably an edition, that this is an edition that made it more Gnostic than the original version. But you could still kind of hypothesize some, some ways in which this gives us some insights into what at least one early group of Jesus followers thought. And let me just give you a couple pieces so you get the point. Um, these are the, this is the very opening. These are the secret sayings which the living Jesus spoke and which Didymus Judas Thomas wrote down. And he said, whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. So if, if you understand what's really going on, if you understand this mysticism, not only will you not like be forever doomed after life, you, in the afterlife, you will em, embrace and understand deathlessness now. I can tell you that Stacy and I, at least, um, we, we have, uh, through the Christian contemplative tradition, through the mystics, through just mysticism in general, have found that space where um, the fear of death has, has kind of crumbled. Although we're very sad when people die, and we don't like the pain of death, but... Um, but, but we can just attest, like we've got a lot of uncertainties, but that fear of death, um, can and has been overcome. Uh, and Jesus said, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds when he finds, he will become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he will become astonished and he will rule over the all. So there's this idea that first you're going to like, you're going to go seeking spiritual wisdom and then you're going to find it and it's going to throw you off. It's going to become unsettling because it's not what you expected. But then when you become troubled, you'll be astonished and ultimately be um, like a godlike being. Um, and I say that recognizing that by doing it that way, people tend to, to see that as like an ego expansion and, uh, and, and kind of arrogant, but it's more of this kind of unity. It's more of like an Eastern thought. And then uh, Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, see, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom um, is inside you and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty and it is you who are that poverty. Jesus said, the man olden days will not hesitate to ask a small child seven days old about the place of life and he will live. For many who are first will become last and they will become one and the same. Now, I think that last part might be a, a transformation of it, but the idea is Jesus obviously in the Gospels talks about the importance of seeing things like children. I don't know about you. When I was a kid, kind of, I understood things the way I understand them now before the church got into it um, in many ways. I was a hippie kid, made up my own stuff. Uh, I, I thought in some ways reincarnation was obviously true, uh, some kind of <laughs> sense of reincarnation, um, uh, but there was this kind of spiritualness to uh, to my childhood. I remember when um, Augie and I were fishing when he was a little kid, uh, maybe three or four years old. Um, we were we were going fishing on the Skulko River there uh, near uh, you know Philadelphia, and um, and he started running with a flock of uh, shorebirds. And then as they flew off, he tried to go up with them. And then he came back all sad. And I said, what's, what's the problem, buddy? And he says, I'm too heavy. He just had this sense <laughs> that he was a different kind of reality. <laughs> and he was like in his body. Anyway, um, but, but ultimately, 
um, the idea is that uh, the, ch the child has a certain understanding of things and the mystic has a certain understanding of things and that these do not require weird um, like revelations from some prophet necessarily. They, they, there are things that, that a lot of spiritual people in, in meditative states kind of realize. And maybe it's not, uh, maybe the language we use um, might need to be qualified in a materialistic, naturalistic worldview. I don't know. Um, but it's, it's something that, that people see. Most importantly, though, um, this whole business about uh, Jesus um, is one in which he talks about this kind of life force um, and this uh, spiritual transformation that kind of fits more with that earlier understanding of what Paul said than what you see later in Luke and in John. And the only thing more I'll say about this this business about the Thomas and uh, the Gospels, the other Gospels that are we, what we call the canonical Gospels, um, the only time that you see the story of the uh, doubting Thomas is in uh, John. And John has some themes that seem kind of close to the Gnostics. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. And it's interesting that Paul says things that sound like what I thought Gnosticism was. It's not that clear cut, you know. But certainly by the time of, um, of Luke and then John, there's this idea that, that they needed to emphasize the physical nature of the resurrection of Jesus. So as I said, Jesus is said to um, eat fish with the disciples and... Um, specifically, um, in John and John only, Thomas is seen as a problem. Thomas is the doubter. Thomas is the one who doesn't get it. He doesn't believe in the resurrection. But then uh, there's this story that Jesus then appears to Thomas and has Thomas touch him and physically see that he has the wounds in his hands in the side. And, uh, of course, again, this is something that is uh, in John, which is much later, so just to, from a historical perspective, it's, there's a strong historical reason to believe that this would be something that would be added. Now, if you already knew this story at the time of Mark, you would have included it, but it, it's something that's added on. And if it's perhaps, and it would make a lot of sense that it was added on to uh, push against the teachings of an actual Thomas or people who claim to be following Thomas. Thomas also interestingly is associated with um, like India in Eastern uh, kind of like a more uh, Hindu uh, understanding of Jesus, uh, uh, Vedantic perhaps understanding of Jesus, whether or not that's true of the history. It's certainly possible that the author of uh, the gospel of John that we call the gospel according to John, which by the way is not uh, there's no reason to believe that that's actually written by uh, a guy who knew Jesus named John, uh, just because it's in the title. Very often these texts would be written anonymously and then some editor later might add for authority or emphasis uh, or theme um, a, a name on the top of it. So, um, but, but the author of John's gospel seems to be um, criticizing the view of resurrection in Thomas. Now, that leaves me personally as a follower of Jesus with this question, uh, whose testimony should I, uh, should I support? Oh, and by the way, also you see in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus takes uh, Thomas aside at one point and all the disciples have like different metaphors for who Jesus is. And Thomas just says, listen, it's like 
ineffable. I, words cannot explain your cosmic reality, essentially. So Jesus takes him aside and tells him some things and that we don't know what Jesus says. Probably something like uh, namaste, like you are the presence of the presence. I am God, but so are you. Something like this, maybe. Um, and again, from the Gnostic perspective. But then, um, uh, but then, you know, Thomas comes back to the disciples and they say, what did Jesus tell you? And Thomas says, um, if I told you, you would stone me. <laughs> So it's probably some kind of thing that like a mystical teaching that always seems blasphemous to religious people, um, even people close to Jesus. In any case, um, it's very possible that these things are not like original historical things that happened, but rather these two theological traditions, one that affirmed the physical resurrection um, in, a, in a very kind of concrete way of a physical body and the other uh, being more of a spiritual body. And that is the tradition of Thomas. There's also this interesting piece uh, where Jesus says, uh, when asked, like, what are we going to do when you're gone? Who should we look to? And he says, uh, you really got to look to James. James is James is the dude. So for all of the early church trying to say that they all, you know, were of one accord and acts trying to show this like kind of happy collaboration between Peter, James, and, and Paul, Ultimately, they did probably historically get together for the sake of the, the unity of their cause, but they definitely had these different schools of thought within it, just like Buddhism does, as I've already said. It's very possible. The, the Jewish tradition has rabbis that are disagreeing with each other. That's part of the fun. Uh, you know, Shammai and Hillel, they're going to argue about stuff, and why not, right? Like, that's part of the fun. So... Um, uh, but in any case, the, um, the, 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 the point being that uh, these different traditions do exist, but it's pretty clear that Paul and James have an uneasy relationship. Certainly the people of Paul and the people of James have uh, uh, disagreements. They're the Judaizers. Um, Paul is speaking in very spiritual terms very often. He certainly says we need to support the poor, but if you read the gospel, uh, if you read the book of James, uh, if it's uh, if it's connected to the actual James, brother of Jesus, it seems pretty clear that he's unhappy with some of the ways people are at least communicating Paul's message. And he says the most important thing is concern for the poor. Um, you have Peter, Peter, who's got his own claim to the lineage. I mean, you know, we see this in Islam where there's competing uh, claims to being the true carrier of the lineage. We can see it within 15 years of, a, of an important spiritual teacher's um, teaching. We see it even with like in Christian apologetics, this guy, Walter Martin starts um, this, you know, the Christian Research Institute and um, there's a debate amongst, you know, the people that come after. Is it this guy Hank Hanegraaff? Uh, is he an interloper that kind of takes over the the the, the thing? Or these other cats? Are, were they it? You know. And so um, this happens all the time. Um, in any case, uh, we should expect this historically. We should expect this religiously. Uh, there's no reason even for Orthodox Christians to believe that God is going to supernaturally keep everybody together when he. You know, certainly within 500 years, we see that the thing's fallen apart. But it should be interesting to us to say that the, the one who solves the problem is the emperor. 
essentially, convening the Council of Nicaea. You know, you have the empire saying, these texts, not those texts. And I can guarantee you that the idea that you are a spiritual being that is uh, the presence of the presence, that you are the embodiment of the Holy Spirit, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're a royal priest, that is politically dangerous to the powers that be. So the powers really do like something closer to Augustine. Well, of course... You know, Augustine in the City of God basically says we can't perfect this world. We're going to have to compromise with this, you know, the powers. And this is something that, you know, Charlemagne later has Alcuin, um, the theologian, read to him as he's sitting, uh, you know, taking a, a naked um, steam bath um, in his palace. And he loves this stuff, Charlemagne, the, the warrior king of the Franks, right? And the, eventually the king of the Romans in 800. So the Western church has privileged the version of Jesus' teaching that allows for us to have all those lofty ideals about loving your neighbor as yourself, but not having to do so in terms of economic distribution of wealth or egalitarianism, the reduction, you know, resistance to hierarchy and all that. So, you know, I mean, the fact is, going back to the original question, um, if I look at the tradition, I realize that the only reason I would stick with what I had grown up with is because of stuff that happened three from like, you, you know, really 300, well, maybe go earlier to Luke and John, but really uh, becomes concretized, well, becomes kind of consolidated from Charlemagne or from Constantine to Charlemagne and then down uh, to kind of the orthodoxies that we know today. But as a follower of Jesus, if I'm looking at the words of Jesus and if I'm looking at other uh, traces of testimony to what Jesus was about, um, I think, ironically, it might be more faithful to Jesus to reject um, a kind of uh, resurrection teaching that I had come to understand. All right. Now, that said, um, let's end here for part one. And then uh, for part two... Um, we will uh, be looking then at arguments for a more traditional view of the resurrection and whether or not, um, you know, I think they still stand up. And it's not really, doesn't really matter whether I think something or not, but it's more about whether or not, um, as I've been thinking about this for a long time, studied the philosophy of religion, studied, um, you know, with people like, um, you know, uh, Richard Swinburne, the philosopher and uh, Christian at Oxford, who uh, writes about the um, essentially arguments, philosophical arguments for the resurrection. I'm going to look at those. I'm going to share those with you and then kind of give you my um, updated understanding of uh, how they hold up. So uh, thanks for uh, this challenging uh, stuff or being with me for this challenging stuff. And uh, even though I bring you some trouble, perhaps, I do wish you peace upon peace. Uh, thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. 
Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said I wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.